So as is customary um, for our podcast, we start every episode by saying, welcome to Brain and Avat. And then I ask our esteemed guests to start with a thought experiment. So, Thad, would you like to do that? <laughs> sure. sure. Um, I've got two thought experiments that I'd like people to think about. Um, they're supposed to be uncontroversial, right? We're all supposed to share the same judgment about these two cases. Um, and from there, I'm going to work up uh, to more contested claims about how we should treat animals. So the first case, I want you to imagine you're out on the savanna, the felt, um, uh, and you see a giraffe, a full-grown one, magnificent. Uh, you have with you some explosives, C4, um, and you could, uh, if you chose, uh, deftly tie some of the explosive to various parts of the giraffe. Right? You could start with the feet, then go to the knees, the hips, uh, work your way up the neck. Um, uh, and you could, uh, furthermore, uh, then detonate the explosives, uh, sort of in demolition fashion, working your way from the bottom to the top. Um, all of that is possible. I'm going to presume that uh, even if you could do that, you shouldn't do it. It would be wrong to do that. You should feel guilty if you did it. You shouldn't teach your kids to do it, right? These are good markers of thinking this, this would be wrong for you to do. Uh, it would also be wrong to set the giraffe on fire at night just to watch it burn as a spectacle in the, in the evening, right? Those things are clearly wrong. Here's the second case. Um, uh, also involves severe harm to an animal, um, but, but has a different implication, I think. In this case, I want you to imagine you're driving a bus or other large vehicle down the road, you're careening down, um, and unfortunately, uh, in front of you, uh, you encounter uh, a pedestrian, a normal adult human being, perhaps somebody else in the audience here, um, on the one hand, and then also a cat. Um, you have to choose which of them to run over, right? Your bus is large. You can't turn to get out of the way. You have to strike one of these individuals. Um, I presume the right thing to do uh, would be to strike the cat if you had to choose and you didn't have a third alternative, right? Uh, you shouldn't flip a coin to decide which individual to strike. Uh, you clearly, I think, should save the human person if you have to choose between the life of that individual and the life of a cat. And again, I'm going to presume you agree with me about that case. If you disagree with me about either case, I, I do want to hear about that eventually during question, question times, and maybe these guys will question one of the cases, I don't know. But I think the cases are interesting. Um, uh, they both involve severe harm to an animal, um, but in the giraffe case, it looks impermissible to cause severe harm to the animal, whereas in the cat case, it looks not merely permissible, but, but required of you to kill the cat so as to save the life of the human person. So that begs the question, right? Suppose we've got that foundation, right? Wrong to kill the giraffe, right to kill the cat. What's the difference, right? What explains the difference? Um, I think a good explanation uh, is that uh, 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 the following principle. Um, it's permissible to inflict severe harm on an animal, um, if necessary, to protect the urgent interest or weighty interest of a human person. But it's not permissible to inflict severe harm on an animal merely to satisfy a trivial interest of a human being. Right. The natural thing to say about the giraffe is, 
uh, you know, it's just not a weighty enough concern. It's a trivial interest just watching the spectacle of an exploding giraffe or a giraffe on fire. Um, whereas saving a human life, well, that's as, that's as weighty as it gets, pretty much. So, uh, 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 we've got now, I think, a pretty good principle to use when thinking about more controversial matters pertaining to animals, such as uh, uh, zoos uh, and hunting and experiments, and also uh, whether we're justified in eating meat. Um, uh, I didn't come here to make you feel guilty um, or even to get you to change your minds about whether to eat meat, uh, but it does strike me that eating meat is more like the giraffe case than it is like the cat case. You might be tempted to say, well, we eat meat because we need it uh, to stay alive and to be healthy, but that's simply not true. Um, uh, there, you need protein to stay alive and be healthy, but the protein doesn't have to come from nearly as many uh, animal sources as many people, uh, uh, as many people use. So uh, it doesn't look like in order for you to be healthy uh, or survive, you have to inflict severe harm on animals such as cows and chickens. Um, um, and so I'm, I'm, I think that the principle that uh, it's only weighty interest that would justify inflicting severe harm on animals leads to the conclusion that most of us should be reducing the amount of meat and animal products we consume. Thanks, Thurs. Um, really nice cases. So um, just an objection and a question. Okay, so the objection would be someone who really buys into animal rights. So someone who really thinks they're extremely valuable and also thinks certain humans are not. So certain humans are really objectionable. So you've got Hitler standing on the one side in the one lane of the road and you've got a dog that rescued 50 people from a submarine on the other side of the road. Um, do you still think that the humans' dignity and their interests outweigh the interests of the cat or the, the dog rather? So that's the, the, first, the first question. Um, the second question is, how are we going to define weighty? So you've excluded eating meat as a weighty concern, but I worry that then you're placing the bar too high on what weightiness is. So if weightiness only pertains to matters of life and death, I just, I worry that uh, if that's really what counts in our decisions, our moral choices should be made according to, to satisfying people's weighty interests or fulfilling their weighty interests, we wouldn't be able to have this debate right now. Um, if, if we just go a few kilometers away, maybe a few hundred meters away, there could be starving people. Those are weighty interests. And yet here we are sitting talking about animal rights. So I worry that... Um, if you set the bar for weightiness as you have, we wouldn't be able to live fulfilled lives at all and for them to be moral lives. As usual, there's a lot there. Um, right. So, yes, uh, uh, if, it, if the choice, right, initially the case was one of the audience members. It wasn't Hitler yet, but you've jumped onto Hitler right away. Um, uh, so I have to choose between Lassie, the, the rescue dog, and uh, and Hitler, um, um, uh, yeah, I would strike Hitler. <laughs> um, but uh, 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 notice uh, that the reason I would strike Hitler um, uh, is that by doing so, I would be protecting other lives. 
So uh, the lesson I had wanted to draw from the initial case was that uh, normally uh, uh, the value of a human being has a dignity. There's a something, you know, the natural thing to say about why should you strike the cat instead of the human um, is that the human is worth more. That's the nat most of us will say something like that in, in a various way. We might say humans are sacred or humans have a dignity or they have a full moral status to use philosophical jargon, but uh, the humans are more important. But uh, uh, in the, the case you've given me, yes, I would strike Hitler, but the reason I would strike Hitler is still a matter of that principle, right? The reason to strike him is to protect human lives and thereby uh, protect uh, uh, beings with a dignity. So I think uh, ultimately uh, the reasoning behind the decisions, the two decisions that look disparate uh, is similar. It's true, I didn't give you a definition of what a weighty interest is relative to a trivial one. Um, and I'm not sure any philosopher has a particularly well worked out theory of that yet. It's a weak spot uh, in the field so far as I know. But we can point to some clear cases of each. So uh, exploding the giraffe, well, that looks, looks pretty trivial. And what's going on there is just simply taking delight in the spectacle. So it's a kind of pleasure uh, that's involved, I think, uh, uh, there. Um, uh, I didn't say so explicitly, but if we're not eating meat uh, uh, to stay alive or to remain healthy, or at least we don't need it for those purposes, then most of us are eating meat for the taste. We're eating it because it tastes good, for the pleasure it gives us. It's a different kind of pleasure, um, but it's still a matter of a sensory sensation um, and one that we could get from another source, right? It doesn't even have to come from eating meat. <laughs> we could get the same pleasure or a comparable pleasure from, from other sources of food. And so from my perspective, it does count as a less than weighty uh, uh, interest. The last point was about uh, how much do we have to go out of our way uh, for beings that are suffering. Um, and that is a, a hard and difficult topic uh, in philosophy. Um, but uh, most of us draw a distinction uh, between uh, 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 failing to help people where we could on the one hand and causing them harm on the other. That is, most of us think uh, all things being equal, uh, it's much worse to commit murder, uh, to kill somebody unjustifiably, than it is to fail to rescue a, a starving person. And throughout the world, every legal system uh, in the world uh, marks a difference. Uh, uh, many legal systems don't punish you at all uh, for not uh, saving lives, and those that do punish to a much less severe extent. Um, so I would say we do have obligations to go out of our way to help uh, starving people and also to go out of our way uh, uh, for the sake of animals. But the case of animals is somewhat different in that if you buy meat uh, merely to uh, experience the pleasant taste, you are contributing to a process that harms the animal. Uh, you're not merely failing to save it. So I want to push you harder, Thad. Okay, so <clears throat> the reason why you would wipe out Hitler with your truck rather than Lassie is because because Hitler's going to hurt some more people. Mm. But let's just say he's not. Let's just say we've uh, we've made sure Hitler's not going to hurt anyone else, right? So maybe he's he's a prisoner on his way. He's busy crossing the road to reach the prison van. 
And we've made sure that Hitler's not going to harm anyone else, but he's harmed a lot of people so far. Now, should we hit Hitler? So that's the first question. The second question is, I want to make a case for why eating meat is a weighty concern um, and maybe transpose it onto the giraffe case and say, well, we might want to blow up the giraffe. Okay, so, so one of the reasons why we might think it's a weighty case is because, yes, some people eat meat purely for pleasure, but eating meat can also be part of a cultural phenomenon. So it could be for religious reasons. It could be that your family gets together to break a fast and the tradition is to eat a chicken or a turkey on Thanksgiving or whatever it is. And it's part of a, a sense of, of uh, groupness and a sense of, uh, of belonging and community. People bry together. And suppose in the giraffe case, it's, it's not just that we're blowing up the giraffe for kicks, but that it's part of an annual tradition. So every year we get together and we blow up one giraffe uh, from from the from the neck down, we we set up the de- we se- we we set up the 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 C four and we we you know it's televised and maybe the giraffe represents our collective shame and uh, if it, you know before we started blowing up the giraffe every year there was horrendous crime in our society and after we started blowing up the giraffe uh, crime dropped to almost nothing uh, people felt this tremendous sense of visceral relief that this that all of our collective uh, um, our collective shame and, and violence was expressed through the destruction of this giraffe, and it has just wonderful consequences for society as a whole. It seems that, at least under certain circumstances, when it's tied to a sense of community, when it's tied to a sense of, um, of ritual and not just a once-off pleasurable act, um, blowing up the giraffe or eating the meat does seem weighty enough to say that it's not obviously wrong. Okay, back to Hitler. Uh, um, so Hitler's not going to do any more naughty things. Um, he's in chains. Um, um, look, if he's being led to the courthouse, then no, I shouldn't run him over. I should let him go to the court. Um, it's not my place, uh, to decide his fate. Um, it would be my place to decide his fate if there were an imminent threat. Um, uh, if I thought reasonably that he was going to do some severe harm to other human persons, uh, and there were no other way to prevent it, well, in that case, then yes, I, I should run him over. Uh, but if he's in chains, he's not going to harm anybody else, uh, then I do think it's not up to me to take his life. It's, I should leave it to the courts to decide what happens to him. So I, I'm happy to bite the bullet there. Uh, um, the suggestion that there are some situations where eating meat would satisfy a weighty interest Look, in, in principle, I don't have a problem with that claim, right? So if I really did need, if, if a person really did need uh, meat to survive and to remain healthy, then I do think it would be justified to eat animals. Uh, then the case would be relevantly similar to the cat case. But the point I'm making is that in much of modern society, we don't have to rely um, on eating meat in order to remain healthy. Um, uh, uh, and so uh, the only realistic reason most of us eat meat then is, is for the taste, which isn't a weighty interest. When you bring in the issue of crime reduction, I think that muddies the waters because then we do have a weighty interest at stake, right? If, so so let's, let's leave that out. Let's just talk about the cluster of values of culture, family, and religion. I think that's your, force, your, your most forceful or, or more revealing, revealing point. 
So I've, I've got two things to say about those cases. Um, uh, I think they are in between, right? So I don't, I don't think they are uh, life and death. I, don't, I wouldn't describe them as weighty interests, but they're not trivial either. I do think there's a relevant difference between eating meat because it's part of a religion and a culture and part of what one's family does uh, and simply doing so for the, for the pleasant taste. I, I accept that. So I think this cluster of values is what I would call a moderate interest. It sits in between uh, the two extremes we've been discussing so far. So then what does that mean? Um, uh, uh, when I started off, I gave you a principle only uh, about uh, uh, eating meat or, or imposing severe harm on animals uh, to satisfy trivial interests on the one hand and weighty interests on the other. I didn't mention anything about moderate interests. Um, and I don't have a nifty, uh, quick and dirty uh, principle to, to govern them. But what I can say about this cluster of values pertaining to culture, religion, and family is that um, it wouldn't involve eating nearly as much meat as many people do. And so religious holidays are not every day, for example. Uh, uh, religious, you know, uh, cultural events, uh, it's not breakfast, lunch, and supper 365 days a year. So even if we uh, uh, sort of let, uh, accept that those can be justifiable reasons for eating meat, uh, it doesn't justify nearly as much meat eating as, as many of us engage in. So that's the one thing to say. The second thing to say, I think, is that even if now uh, we're justified in eating meat for, let's say, cultural or religious reasons, we also have some reason to try to change the religion or the culture. Yeah. So uh, we can participate in the practice, but we at the same time should be trying to go out of our way a bit to change the practice, to point out to our fellow congregants, eh, could we have a meat-free Monday at church or whatever it is, <laughs> um, uh, to try to move things in, in a more ethical direction. So what's interesting about the giraffe case, I imagine everybody feels a visceral sense that it would be very wrong to do that. And... I wonder if part of that is because we think of um, wildlife in a different category to other animals. We think of them as being majestic. Um, we think that they have special rights, that we might not care about the particular giraffe, but about protecting nature um, or giraffes in general. So there are a couple of things that might follow from that. One is a way to protect wildlife is to sell hunting licenses. So you create an incentive for a farmer to breed a certain rare animal. Um, and if you sell um, that right for someone to shoot it, so some uh, wealthy person from Minneapolis comes out on their holiday, they get to shoot the, uh, the rare animal um, and take it home. And so now we breed many more of those animals. And so it's good um, for the species, maybe good for, for that kind of thing. And you know the rest of the money that can be used for conservation, it seems like a way if you care about that environment. But if there was a small tribe in Papua New Guinea, which has only 30 members left, and I said, well, we could do a similar thing. Um, there's some uh, wealthy person who's uh, quite keen on eating Papua New Guinean babies or you know, mounting their heads up on the walls, and they'd pay an enormous amount of money. Suppose we have to engage in some kind of culling in order to protect the long-term interests of individual animals. In that case, I am willing to, to bite the bullet and say that hunting under those conditions would be justified. But notice it's not for the sake of a trivial interest. It's to protect the urgent interests 
of presumably many more animals. You're right, we often don't think that this kind of treatment is permissible when it comes to human beings, in particular babies. But I think it's a mark, I think the difference in intuition is a mark of the fact that we tend to ascribe human beings a dignity. We're much less inclined to ascribe animals a dignity. So while I think animals matter for their own sake, and it's possible to wrong them, and we often do wrong them in our day-to-day -day lives, still, as the cat case reveals, I think, they don't have quite the same status as we do. And so that makes them liable to more utilitarian calculation. So the other thing worth pointing out is that I think if you polled people in the audience and said, what's your view on hunting? Most people recoil from hunting and think that you've done something quite sinister. Yeah, <laughs> why not? So, But hunting your, under what circumstances? Put your hands up if you're comfortable with the American who comes out to shoot canned lion or canned rhino or canned giraffe. If you think I'm okay with that, put your hand up. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. So my, my assumption, yeah, my assumption was correct is that people feel uncomfortable with that. Well, How wait, many wait people, ask the other question. Ask the flip side. Flip side is yeah. oh, which you mean ask well, whether they think it's wrong. In so they words, didn't say it was right, but are they willing to say it's wrong? Yeah, how many of you would put your hand up and say it's wrong to do it? Okay, okay all right. So that flip works. <laughs> how many of you eat meat? Put your hand up. Okay, all right. So my assumption is correct, is that most people think hunters have done a really bad thing. I'm not just, I'm not comfortable with it, and it's wrong, and I eat meat. Okay, so how do we explain it? Partly because it seems like there's a visceral thing we can imagine. You can see the trophy, you can imagine the majestic beast being shot down, but you're not watching all those animals that wind up on your plate dying. And the scale is gigantically different. So in America, the view is about 10 billion animals a year are killed for meat. Okay. So it's a gigantic number. There aren't 10 billion water buffalo or rhinos that are being killed on that scale. But they're a renewable resource. They're often killed in ways that are quite cruel in terms of how they're reared. Factory farms are probably one of the most unpleasant places to be. But people don't seem to mind. They seem that they can live with this idea. Now, it seems that vegetarianism as a movement has grown quite significantly over time. If you think about South Africa in the 90s, if you wanted to eat vegetarian food, you basically got whatever came on the side of the steak. So you got your salad or your, your butternut and your spinach. Now you can go to Estia's or any other mainstream restaurant and you can get a thing that tastes like meat but isn't made of meat. So you can get, for a while, Beyond Burgers until the government decided that we don't want these vegetarians duping meat eaters into thinking that it's a burger made of real meat, so they've banned them. But before then, you could get a Beyond Burger, and you can now get a whatever vegetarian equivalent is from those places. And so vegetarianism as a movement has led to large reductions in people eating meat. One of the reasons why that government ban is there, farmers are worried. It's eating into our business profits. But here's the rub. As a private individual, it's not clear that your choice to no longer eat meat will push the scale. It might be a little bit like thinking, I'm going to help fill up this dam by taking a thimble and putting it in the dam. By the time your thimble lands, it already evaporates. It might be the case that you will never tip the scales in any way. It might be similar to voting, in that you think it's a good symbolic exercise to be involved in the democratic process, but it's incredibly unlikely that your vote will ever tip the scales. If we're in that situation where there is no efficacy to your private choice, can we make the claim that it's a moral obligation not to meet, eat meat? You might think it's good to be part of this movement. It's a symbolically good thing. You might be a hypocrite to speak out against animal cruelty and continue to eat meat. 
But if it doesn't have any real-world effects, can we say that you're obliged not to eat meat? Yeah, look, I don't think... I did... People have received a book from my colleagues, and the main argument for vegetarianism in the book, at least in the first part, is that if you don't eat the meat, there's some chance you'll do some good uh, in the long run. And I think that's interesting and worth thinking about, and people should read the book. But it's not my particular reasons for thinking we should reduce the amount of animal products we consume. So I think I, I want to try granting for the sake of argument that vegetarianism actually won't do any good. <laughs> it's not going to save any animals, but still provide some reasons to think that we might have moral reason to be vegetarians. And I've got two. One is that it's normally wrong to encourage people to do wrong things, even if they would do the wrong thing if we didn't encourage them. So if there's going to be a lynching of some kind, whether literal or virtual, and the innocent person doesn't deserve to be lynched, it would be wrong for you to cheer on the lynching, even if the lynching would happen if you did not cheer the person on. So you refraining from cheering on, encouraging the lynching, you, you not doing that isn't going to do any good. It's going to happen anyway. But it would still be wrong for you to encourage or incentivize somebody to engage in that behavior. And so we could see the purchase of neatly shrink-wrapped styrofoam containers of meat as providing a, an analogous incentive to the hunter or the butcher or the factory farm owner, which is of most concern, as Mark points out. So that's one reason. I think we've got some reason to avoid eating meat, even if it won't do any good. The second reason is that many of us have the intuition that it's wrong to participate in a process that we could avoid participating in when it is tainted in some way. And this isn't a matter of not encouraging. It's just trying to keep one's hands clean. And for an illustration, I was once on a research ethics committee and we received a proposal from an academic who wanted to gather children who had recently been starving and show them pictures of lavish banquets to see their reactions. I said, no, <laughs> I thought this was a bad idea. My, my years of ethics training had prepared me for the moment to say that, no, I'm, I don't think universities should improve, approve of this research, let alone fund it. But suppose that research went ahead. Suppose it happened. We've got children, let's imagine their consent wasn't obtained, there wasn't consent from the parents, and just even if there had been consent, this is just not the sort of study to be undertaking. But suppose it happened. These days, very few professional scientific journals would publish the findings of the study. Part of the reason would be they don't want to encourage unethical behavior, but we can imagine the journal saying to this researcher, we're never going to publish anything by you again, but we'll publish this material. We'll publish the findings of this study. They could do that, but they would still be wrong to do it. And the best explanation, I think, of why it would be wrong for a journal to publish scientific results that are a consequence of immoral behavior is that the journal shouldn't want to be part of the process. It shouldn't want to participate in a wrongful process if it can easily avoid doing so. 
And so I think there again, we have a second reason why we might think vegetarianism is, well, there's good moral reason to be vegetarian, even if it won't do any good. We have cleaner hands. So I've got a few concerns that it seems like one of a few meat eaters in the room. So we're going to push hard. Okay. So the first problem is you, you bit the bullet on hitting arrested, on not hitting arrested Hitler and, and rather hitting Lassie rescue dog. <laughs> And I'm not willing to just let that go. I think that, that suggests something interesting about your account. That animals don't matter much. They don't even matter as much as Hitler, assuming he's not going to hurt any more people. And then it makes me think, how bad is it then to blow up the giraffe or eat the animal? Sure, you'd say it's wrong, but it's not as wrong it's better than hitting arrested Hitler in the road. So it's not that bad. Some people would say you're doing a good thing by hitting arrested Hitler. Mm -hmm. So if it is bad at all, it seems not that bad. And then there's a related question, which is, why is it wrong to blow up the giraffe? You seem to think that the giraffe lacks some sort of internal dignity the way arrested Hitler does. Arrested Hitler seems to have very little dignity, right? So it means that giraffe or that or lassie or that animal that you're going to eat has very little indeed. So I'm curious what reason you can give for the moral status of animals. And then just finally, I'm going to suggest why you might be morally obligated to eat meat that's on the shelf. Okay, so you walk into pick and pay or you walk into Woolworths and there's a piece of meat on the shelf. And I'm going to grant you and Mark that the process involved in in arriving at the, that meat was horrendous, right? So as you say, it's tainted. Okay, so the process is tainted. I grant it. The animal suffered horrendously. It wasn't free-ranging. It was tortured before it died. And let's say this is widespread. Okay, so I'm granting all of that. But now that piece of meat is on the shelf. If you don't eat that piece of meat, that animal died for nothing. I think given how horrendous the circumstances were in leading up to that animal's death, you have an obligation at the very least to go and eat that animal. Okay. Three hard questions again from Jason. Okay. So look, in the Hitler case, I was supposing he was in shackles because he's on his way to court. And so society is going to judge him through a fair process and impose some burdens on him. So I do think, I actually think Hitler retains an inherent dignity just by virtue of being a person. And so he's entitled to a fair trial. And it's not my place to mete out the punishment to him. But we can change the case a bit. Suppose he's tied up, but he's not on his way to court, and we're on a deserted island. There is no court to give him his due. Under that situation, then I do think I should strike Hitler. But the way to do it, the reason for that isn't that he's lost his dignity isn't that he's lost his dignity. It's rather a way to show respect for his dignity. He's misused his ability to relate to others in the appropriate way. And normally we want a fair collective process to impose burdens on people who do those things. But if I'm the only one there, I'll do it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm willing to say that under, under a different sort of scenario where I'm alone the judge and the jury and the executioner then would in fact be respectful of Hitler's dignity, perhaps to give him a whack, at least to run over his legs. I would do that. And I would save Lassie. 
I do think animals, I don't think animals have a dignity, at least most. If I learned more about chimpanzees and perhaps elephants and dolphins, I might change my mind. I'm not an expert on animal welfare science, but for the most part, my cats, but they do seem to matter for their own sake. One natural reason to think so is that they're capable of feeling pain and conversely pleasure. That's just obvious. They can have better and worse qualities of life. Part of that involves sentience, their ability to feel pleasure and pain. And so that merits moral consideration. But I think there's more going on when it comes to what we owe animals. So I think the fact that animals have certain intentions and a certain nature that normally wants expression also matters. So there's something problematic on the face of it when we cage birds. And even if the birds don't feel any pain or, and aren't frustrated, imagine we could give them little birdie pills in with their food to prevent them from feeling frustrated or anxious or having negative feelings. Still, I think there would be something degrading about caging a bird or caging a lion and again, giving it pills to, to prevent it from feeling, feeling painful. So there's something about restricting the natural intentionality of animals that I also think is morally important. Those are the two big ones for me. They don't add up to dignity, but they're quite different than plants and rocks or even bacteria or spiders. So that's the reason why I think Lassie does matter. And then we've got the case of it's dead anyway and may as well make the best of it. I actually do think something like that principle is right. So strictly speaking, if I were to hang my hat on a certain kind of vegetarianism, it would be what's technically called roadkill vegetarianism by moral philosophers. So if you accidentally strike a deer and you're a vegetarian, by my principles, you may as well take it home and eat it because you're not encouraging further killings of deers. You're not rewarding anybody for having unjustifiably killed a deer. You're not participating in a bad process. It was an accident. So under those situations, I actually do think it's appropriate to, to make the best of it. But that case is different from the case of the thing in the store because you are participating in the process. You are incentivizing the factory farmer. So we have a... An episode coming out this weekend which argues in favor of direct action against the meat production industry. So the idea of direct action is that you don't need to just protest what the meat industry is doing or stop eating meat, that you should take strong measures, maybe firebombing some of the factory equipment that's killing all these animals. So here's the rough argument for it. Imagine that you're on your nightly stroll down your neighborhood and you hear blood-curdling screams coming out of one of your neighbor's houses. And so you rush into the house you go down to the basement and there's your neighbor Fred. And your neighbor Fred has got a drill and he's busy drilling puppies. Okay. And uh, you spring into action, you throw the drill out of his hand, you destroy it, you tie him up, you call the police, and the puppies are released. And you think, maybe he might do this again, so I'm going to flood his basement as well. Now, I think a lot of people have the intuition that there's the right thing to do. Now, when Fred is in the dock, and he's being prosecuted for his crimes, he says, look, this has all been a huge misunderstanding. Um, I happen to have this genetic defect where I can't taste chocolate properly. But it turns out that if you torture puppies to death, they produce this hormone called kokomo. If you eat the kokomo, you can taste the chocolate, and it tastes fantastic. 
And that's exactly what you guys are doing with the beef and the, the cows and the chickens. You could be eating the soya, which doesn't taste quite as good, but you think that it's okay to go and slaughter all these animals to death and these, torture them to death in all these horrendous ways because it tastes good. So we're in the same camp. So what's the problem? So our guest thinks that if it's okay to go and destroy Fred's basement, restrain him, then surely you should be allowed to take that kind of action against the merchants of death in the factory home industry. And I wonder if you share the intuition. That's a weird case. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> okay. Now, yours is more weird. Look, normally, if we're going to interfere with people's liberty, we want some kind of democratic ratification. That should be the default position for a society. Right? We don't want a society in which people simply interfere with others whenever they think others are doing wrongful actions. It would be a messed up society. We have a much more orderly and respectful society if we've got some kind of democratic deliberation about when it's okay to interfere with people's liberty. Democracies get things wrong, fair enough, but we need to put up with a certain share of injustice to make the system function. Because any time we broke the law when we thought it was unjust and we all have different understandings of what counts as just and unjust, again, we're going to have a chaotic society of rule breakers. And everybody's probably going to lose on average. As a default, I shouldn't be the one to go into Fred's house. I should rather call the police and see whether there's a law in the books against torturing puppies. So that's the first, that's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is we need to think about whether it would do any good to engage in the kind of direct action that it sounds like your guest is advocating. So I do think civil disobedience can be justified, but a necessary condition of the civil disobedience is that it's likely to do some good. It's actually going to save some lives, reduce some injustice, prevent some harm, some serious harm. And it's not so clear to me that if we firebomb a factory farm, that it's actually gonna save any chickens. You'll get arrested, you go to jail, and the insurance will pay out the farmer and he'll build the factory farm right back up. At least that's a likely outcome. If so, then I think engaging in the direct action is an injustice against the farmer and the broader society. And it's certainly not obligated on the part uh, of the rebel. I wonder whether you're trying to have your cake and eat it too, though, Thad. So when you say that only weighty interests count when assessing whether to harm animals, it seems like the interest of the slaughterhouse owner isn't weighty, right? So you can't appeal to a weighty reason not to rescue the animals inside, who do seem to have the weightiest reason in terms of their lives to be saved. So then you're appealing to something like liberty, so you can't trample on the rights of humans. But are you not doing so when you stop people from eating meat generally, or is your view that you shouldn't stop people from eating meat? Okay, so I'm guessing that's the view. You shouldn't stop people from eating meat. I just I worry that vegetarianism, vegan movements, and vegetarian movements generally try to do that. So you might then be committed to the view that having a vegetarian movement that's very outspoken is wrong, which is an interesting interesting conclusion. And then I wanted to ask a second question, which is part of the reason why you said that it's wrong to harm an animal is because it has some sort of animal nature. 
and you're interfering with it. You're interfering with the bird by placing it in a cage. You're interfering with a lion by feeding it antidepressants and putting it in a cage. So what does that mean about keeping a pet? Does that mean that keeping pets is always wrong because it seems to interfere with their essential nature as animals? Okay. I, I think... Yeah, I think more carefully, I would say in the case of the farmer, if you did firebomb the factory farm, I'm not sure you'd be wronging the farmer, but I do think you'd be wronging the broader society. You'd be taking the law into your own hands. It's not really up to you to decide when people's liberty gets to be infringed and when things get to be exploded, property gets to be destroyed. That should be up to the society. So more carefully, I think the claim would be we owe it to one another to engage in fair procedures about when to, to interfere with others' liberty. So it wouldn't be the farmer that has the complaint. It would be the state or us as a collective or as a group. So, yeah, when it comes to whether the state should prevent us from eating meat, I don't go that far, in part because I don't think it would be effective. I think, in fact, we have a similar problem as we would have if one individual simply firebombed a factory farm. People aren't ready to make that sort of switch. What I think would be more reasonable for a government to do is to educate people about the source of their food. So when it comes to factory farms of the sort Mark was describing, people just don't know, by and large, what goes on there. So I do think it would be reasonable for a government at least to require meat producers to describe the nature of the production process so that people could at least make an informed choice. I also think it would be reasonable for the state to fund alternatives to meat. So it might have a local Beyond Burger factory that it either runs or offers tax breaks or low interest loans or the like. Those kinds of things don't involve coercion or force, but they might actually do some good, unlike a blanket ban adopted overnight. But moving now to pets instead of chickens in factory farms, I do think animals have a little nature to themselves. And I think whether having a pet sort of degrades that nature or cramps it depends on the nature of the animal. So I think it's one thing to have a tiger locked up in a cage that's on display, which some rich people do, I see. On the one hand, and to have, I don't know, a gecko, a lizard, in a very large aquarium on the other? Seems like the lizard could still be lizardish in that kind of context, whereas the tiger is doomed in, in that context. So I think it depends on the animal. When it comes to cats and dogs, it looks perfectly consistent with their nature, at least if there's enough space for them. I do have qualms about cats being stuck in apartments, on the other hand, if the alternative to that is euthanasia, well, it looks okay. I wonder if you could revisit this hunting thing. So you've got the wealthy hunter from America who is intent on, on killing an animal and is prepared to pay $100,000, $200,000, $300,000 for the privilege. His or her weightiness is very low. They're doing it for pleasure, much like the taste of meat. However, the hunting industry argues that they can use those funds in a weighty manner 
for the benefit of the other animals. So you have a weightless and a weighty. Two participants. Can you comment on that? I will first. I, my colleagues might also have views that are relevant. For me, it depends on whether that's the only available way to help the animals. In fact, if it were the only available way to help humans, I would think it's justified. So if there are extremely poor parts of the world that just don't have enough economically going on, and one of the very few ways to get hundreds of thousands of dollars is to offer canned hunting, I think under those extreme circumstances, it's justified if there really isn't any other way to get the dollars. Animals are more liable to utilitarian calculus because they don't have a dignity, whereas human persons do. And so even if we were the way to say that people were to inflict great harm on some individual members without their consent, it would be impermissible. So that's going to be the difference. But so much depends on the details, I think. Is that really the only way to get the money here? If it is, I think it's justified. So I think they're morally important. We owe them duties for their own sake. I would say they even have rights. A dignity, I would say, is something like an inherent superlative value. It's the natural thing to say when we are choosing between whether to run over the person or the cat in the bus case is that the human is worth more than the cat. Most of us will say that. And the relevant sense of worth is not instrumentally worth more. It's not as though the human is going to do more necessarily. The human might not do much at all. It might be incapable of doing very much. Instead, what matters about the human is something inherent. Right? There's something about the humanness or the personhood that matters for its own sake. And we philosophers debate about what that might be, but the human person has got it and cats do not. The problem for utilitarianism is I don't think it gives us right answers about cases we've taken for granted in our conversation over the past hour. Suppose returning to that cat case, that striking the cat or striking the human person would cause the same amount of pain. They've got similar nervous systems. Right? For all we can tell, the kind of pain a cat feels is quite similar to the kind of pain we feel, not psychologically in terms of anxiety or those kinds of things, but physically the pains are comparable. Suppose the pain produced would be equal. I still think you've got reason to strike, unfortunately, the cat if necessary to save the life of the human person. And so we can't be the pain anymore. It can't be the pleasure. It's got to be some other moral consideration that is at work directing us to strike the cat to save the person. Similarly, the tiger, the caged tiger, looks really bad. Even if we dope up the tiger with drugs to prevent it from feeling anxiety or pain from being caged, it looks wrong to treat tigers that way. But for the utilitarian, if everybody enjoys looking at the tiger and the tiger's not feeling any pain, we're required to do that to the tiger. I want to replace the cat with Homo erectus. Does the argument stay the same? It's hard to draw the line. It is. In a way, this raises, again, the question of why think that the human person has a dignity and not the cat. And I didn't give you an answer to that before, but I'll do it now. I think what makes us special, and the reason to strike the cat as opposed to the human person, 
is that human beings characteristically have the ability to love and be loved in the way in a way that animals don't love in the sense of being aware of another person's state of mind being able to restrain one's own ends and interests for the sake of others being able to act for the sake of another individual as opposed to one's long-term self-interest i think those are special capacities of they don't manifest it enough <laughs> but i think the fact they've got the capacity to do that makes them relevantly different than individuals that lack that capacity what matters particularly about animals is their capacity for pleasure or pain and their sort of natural inclinations or intentionality i think it's possible to to breed animals in ways that are consistent with those features we have dogs now dogs are quite happy to be with us if there's a way to get from wolf to dog that is respectful of the animal's nature and doesn't harm it in the process i don't see anything inherently wrong with that